You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. Also a reminder that you can come back at 2 p.m. today for a special edition of Detroit Today, an extra hour in the day where we're going to welcome a local physician to the studio to talk to you about your medical questions, your direct medical questions about coronavirus, this awful pandemic that we are all living through. We are getting lots of calls from listeners asking questions about what they can do, what they can't do, what they should do if they or family members start to show symptoms. Uh, This extra hour of Detroit Today is designed specifically to address those concerns. So again, come back at 2 p.m. today. I will be here and we'll have a physician with us to answer all of those questions. In the past few weeks, there has been a lot of attention on previous pandemics, what we can learn from them and how they measure up to the coronavirus in terms of how easily they spread, whether it's the Spanish flu of 1918 or the HIV epidemic of the 1980s, government action and transparency, or lack thereof, has always played a really crucial role in times like these. Here to tell us more about the history of pandemics is Dr. Howard Markle, the George E. Wants Distinguished Professor of the History of Medicine and Director of the Center for the History of Medicine at the University of Michigan. Dr. Markle, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you. Yes, it's great to have you here. Um, So let's start with just the idea uh, of pandemic. This is something that uh, we have as Americans, lived through many times. We have uh, survived, uh, as a country at least, uh, lots of times that this has happened. Back in January, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about what was then the largest quarantine in history in response to the coronavirus in Wuhan, China. You questioned whether quarantines are actually the best way to contain a disease. Talk about the issues and challenges around that. Well, To begin, uh, quarantines, as any social distancing measures, are always leaky, uh, meaning that uh, cases get through. They're not uh, perfect. Uh, And, of course, you have to be concerned about uh, individual rights and comfort and uh, medical and psychological care of those you are quarantining. Uh, When Wuhan ordered its uh, quarantine at the end of or whether when China ordered its quarantine of Wuhan and 14 other cities, which then ultimately extended to more than a billion people under lockdown, it was very much a top-down kind of order. And in an autocratic, authoritative government, that tends to work better than, say, in an open democracy like our, our own. But still, when China did order that, it was a month into their epidemic experience. We have since found out that they concealed cases for at least a month. And uh, several million people left Wuhan before those orders were made. So conceivably, some or many of those people were already infected with COVID-19 and spread the infection throughout China and, in fact, Europe and the world. So that what I was saying in that New York Times uh, piece back in late January was uh, quarantines that are Im- implemented too late uh, are rarely effective. And indeed, uh, this delay probably gave the COVID-19 uh, microbe a running head start 
on becoming a pandemic. So if quarantine doesn't work, if we're too late to do that, what on earth are we to do? And what can we learn from history with regard to other kinds of pandemics that will help us out now? Well, that's, that's exactly the problem is that when, um, it, when you have measures like quarantine and isolation, that's first important to know, or your listeners should know. Isolation means that you're isolating those people who are uh, confirmed by laboratory tests to be ill with COVID-19. And hopefully they're put in special isolation rooms in hospitals and cared for as best they can. Quarantine means that you are uh, uh, asking people to stay at home or where it could be a, a separate facility, but these are people you suspect of having contact with the ill, but they are not yet ill themselves. Uh, there are other measures that we now call non-pharmaceutical interventions, meaning there's no medical treatment or vaccine, and these two are age-old uh, uh measures, uh, including public gathering bans, so you don't have, you know, baseball games or movies or people getting together in large groups, and school closures. And this is precisely the suite of options that were used in 1918-1919 for the influenza pandemic, which killed roughly between 40 and 100 million people around the world. In the United States alone, it probably killed about 600,000 to 750,000 Americans, and 10 to 14 million Americans became very ill. And influenza, it should be known, is is not a common cold. You are very sick and uh, can easily die, particularly back then, because you got viral pneumonia, which often developed into bacterial pneumonia, and there were no antibiotics or antivirals. There weren't even IV fluids back then. So people got very sick and died very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so in 1918, 1919, various public health departments in different cities across the land, because, you know, uh, public health is very much a local or state jurisdiction, and the federal government was very small back then, uh, so that each city ordered its own suite of options, but did them differently in that some did them early, some did them late, some were organized, some were disorganized. Some cities had a great deal of infighting between their leaders uh, or lack of good communication. And so we at the University of Michigan Center for the History of Medicine were asked by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, this is about 13, 14 years ago, when we were doing pandemic preparedness work uh, for avian flu, remember that, in 2005, mm -hmm. and again in 2009 for the H1N1 influenza pandemic that was indeed a pandemic, but fortunately Mother Nature threw us a break in that it was not much more lethal than seasonal flu. But we studied uh, 43 cities to see what they did in the United States during the uh, fall and winter wave of the 1918-19 pandemic. That's when most of the people who were affected by this pandemic uh, became ill and died. And we found that cities that acted early, because you have to act before the virus hits an inflection point and is just spreading wildly throughout a community, use these measures in a layered fashion. That, that, that means they did more than one at the same time. So you did quarantine and isolation at the same time you did school closures, and then did them for a long period of time hmm. because 
non-pharmaceutical interventions or social distancing measures don't cure the virus in question. They don't prevent it. They simply buy you time. And the concept behind buying that time has now become uh, a set of buzzwords, flattening the curve, <laughs> which uh, our group at University of Michigan, the CDC, <laughs> originated that term many years ago, not realizing that it would become you know, a, a, a meme <laughs> or a mantra. And the idea is to flatten that epidemic curve, you know, which is generally a usually untreated, a giant hump that goes very high very quickly and then goes down eventually over a course of days or weeks, but that you would flatten it so that fewer cases would occur at the same time. Right. And one reason for doing that, you're already describing that to your viewers is that, or your listeners, sorry, is that um, you don't want tons of people going to the hospital or to the doctors or nurses or clinics all the same time because you'll overrun its capacity. And don't forget, our hospitals and clinics and doctors and nurses are busy on day-to-day work taking care of regular people with strokes or heart attacks or diabetes or what have you. So you don't want to overrun the hospitals. You don't want to overrun the intensive care units and respirator qualities and hope, uh, uh, capabilities. And hopefully, by buying time in our modern era, that you'll have enough time to develop effective medical treatments, uh, effective public health measures, and maybe even the holy grail vaccine to prevent COVID entirely. So that was the concept we were working at. And we, 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 we published those findings in the journal of the AMA in August of 2007. It became the evidence base basically for the uh, CDC's uh, and the United States government's pandemic preparedness planning for community mitigation strategies. And in 2009, they were unrolled, particularly in Mexico, which was the first place that was struck by H1N1. And uh, we were all applauding Mexico, which acted in a very transparent and immediate manner to uh, tackle that crisis. And they indeed did those measures for 18 days and had very similar epidemic curves as to what we studied in 1918. But they stopped them after 18 days because they learned, well, the world learned, that that influenza strain was not that uh, deadly. And you don't unroll these types of measures, which we're finding out firsthand are incredibly disruptive socially, economically, every other which way. Uh, and you only would unroll them for something that is a worst-case scenario, like the 1918 flu. And currently with COVID, because it is so deadly, particularly to our elderly Americans and Americans with, uh, or actually anyone around the world, with pre-existing serious conditions. And there are a lot more people like that walking around today in 2020 than there were in 1918. In fact, many people with diseases like cancer, that they may be getting chemotherapy or radiation or immunotherapy, HIV AIDS patients, diabetics, transplant patients, and cardiovascular patients, by the way. But there's a lot more of those walking around. They, they would all have been dead <laughs> in 1918 before the flu even hit because you, you couldn't survive with those kinds of serious illnesses. So we're trying to prevent uh, those people from getting very sick and, uh, and, in fact, some of them dying. Yeah. 
My guest is Howard Markle. He is the George E. Wants Distinguished Professor of the History of Medicine and Director of the Center for the History of Medicine at the University of Michigan. We're talking about pandemics, the pandemics that we have already survived as Americans and as humanity, and what they might tell us about coronavirus, the current pandemic, things that we might learn from the behavior that we indulge then that would help us now. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us whether you remember the H1N1 flu, the bird flu, or the HIV AIDS epidemic of the 1980s. How is what's happening different from then? Uh, what are your memories of other kinds of pandemics? Uh, do you have relatives or have you heard stories of relatives who lived through or died during the Spanish flu of 1918. And does thinking about our ability to live through these epidemics give you hope that we will make it through this one? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter. Put comments there, and we'll try to work them into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Markle, I want to I want to play a little bit of presidential history with you uh, and comparative pres presidential history. Woodrow Wilson was the president uh, when the, the Spanish flu hit in 1918. There were a lot of people who were critical of the way he handled that pandemic, um, what he did or what he didn't do. I wonder if uh, you can give us a window onto the way he handled that and make a couple comparisons to the way we're doing it now. Well, it's interesting. There's been a historical trope circulating that people were critical of Woodrow Wilson during the 1918-19 pandemic. But the reality is, given the size of the federal government and its um, um, institutional lack of involvement in public health matters that were largely a municipal or uh, state function. Uh, I think that's a bit overemphasized by recent commentators. To begin, the president, uh, President Wilson, was rather busy <laughs> in Europe <laughs> with a world, uh, a world war, right? <laughs> well, the world war had ended on November 11, no. 1918. He traveled uh, soon after to Europe. Uh, to Paris specifically, and he was there till April negotiating the League of Nations mm -hmm. Treaty uh, that may be recalled. He actually got influenza while he was in Paris and was very ill. He was never the most robust of men, but he was primarily in Europe uh, doing work uh, uh, to uh, end the war that end all, ended all wars. And when he came back to the United States, in April, uh, most of the pandemic had subsided by then, and he went on a whistle-stop uh, train tour to try to get Americans to sign on to the League of Nations Treaty, which ultimately failed. Um, you know, the federal government did not really have a public health uh, department. There was the U.S. Public Health Service that was basically a hundred men who uh, ran to this epidemic and that epidemic, but primarily to study it or worked at our largest ports. And uh, a lot of the issues that had to do with public health was at the city level. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there weren't there weren't people complaining <laughs> about it. <laughs> they didn't have that. anything to compare it to. Right? They didn't have anything to compare it to, and they had plenty of other things to think about. 
uh, at that time. Um, so it, it was very, it was a very different country and a very different set. There was no CDC, of course. There was no NIH. Uh, you know, it was just a very different federal government. Yeah. Uh, Chuck in Dearborn called, can't say on the line, but wants to know if flattening the curve will limit the number of people who will die from this, or does it just slow the spread? I think that's a really interesting question about the way uh, the, the, this sort of infection rate and and the infectious nature of a disease like this actually works? Well, it's an excellent question, and it has to do with what's called the transmission rate or the r naught of how many people will infect other people with this particular microbe. The hope is that it will uh, not only flatten the curve, but reduce the number of cases and deaths. But that's predicated on how long you do it. So if we were to roll up our uh, uh, social distancing measures right now, or even a week from now, and uh, we would probably see the virus circulate uh, as wildly as predicted uh, a few weeks back, and more people would get sick and die. Uh, it takes a great amount of fortitude to keep these measures in place for all the obvious reasons. Uh, the economic uh, situation, the social situation, even the individual situation where people are kind of going stir-crazy after a while and want to go back to their normal lives. So there's a real uh, uh, impulse to say, okay, we're done, and let's go back to normal, and then the cases will rise again and more people than need to will die. So the hope is, is that if we can stay the course and keep this going far beyond the peak of the epidemic, which experts at the CDC and NIH predict won't even happen for a few weeks to come, maybe three weeks to come, and then waiting a few more weeks after that till the cases really go down to a very small level of transmission, will we succeed in not just flattening the curve, but preventing cases and deaths. Again, Chuck, thank you for the call and the question. Let's go to Carol in Detroit. Carol, welcome to the show. You there, Carol? Yes, I'm here. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, my question is, um, or my thought is, um, in the 1918 pandemic, uh, hundreds of thousands of people were killed in this country and millions worldwide. And I was, I'm wondering, there's been a lot of talk about what wasn't, what was and wasn't done at the time in terms of quarantining or whatever. But what I'm wondering is, what was the aftermath of that pandemic? In other words, how did the country and the world get to a normal or a new normal? Hmm. What changed, if anything, societally mm-hmm. from before to after? Yeah, uh, we know there were the Roaring Twenties, followed by the Great Depression. Yeah, um, but how did I'd we like get to, past that 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 sort of inflection point of 1918? That's a great question, Carol. Well, not just how, but what societally, if anything, changed? Yeah, yeah great yeah. question, uh, Dr. Markel. Uh, go ahead. Well, to begin, Americans of that era had dealt with many, many pandemics on an annual or almost, you know, every other year kind of a basis. Uh, don't forget, in, in 1900, one out of five babies would die for their first birthday, generally because of a childhood infectious disease. We did not have vaccines for diphtheria, tetanus, measles, polio, what have you. And um, so there was, there was uh, some more familiarity with the threat of infectious diseases in a way that does not really exist today, thanks to the wonders of modern medicine. 
Um, but here's the, here's the fascinating thing is that if you look at American society in, say, the spring or summer of 1919, and you start following, you know, various social and cultural uh, uh, markers, is that life did indeed return to normal rather quickly. And people went on, and people today will go on. Uh, what I find in my own study of pandemics uh, past, and this goes this is work that goes for 30 or more years personally in my own life, but, you know, thousands of years in history, is that the final act of almost every pandemic or epidemic I've ever studied is one of global amnesia, and that people tend to just forget uh, what happened. Uh, they may be mourning the sick or the dead, but they move on and they go back to their lives as normal. And so I'm very confident that once we get through this, once we get through the tunnel and we see the light, that we'll be able to move on and uh, continue to live our lives as we have in the past. Okay, Dr. Howard Markle. George E. Wants, Distinguished Professor of the History of Medicine and the Director of the Center for the History of Medicine at the University of Michigan. It was great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Anytime. Up next, a conversation with Crane's Detroit business reporter, Jay Green, about what healthcare professionals are up against as they try to combat the coronavirus here in Michigan. Also remember that we are getting closer and closer to that spring fundraiser goal. Just a few gifts will get us across the line. Help support Detroit Today and all the other great programming here on WDET. Go to WDET.org or call 800-959-9338. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.